pardon my cold voice. Hopefully I'm not too too foggy. I say mist mist in the pulpit, fog in the pew, is that the saying? <laughs> Let's pray before we uh, dive into God's Word. Our Father, we bless you for revealing yourself to us in your Word. Reveal yourself to us this morning. Reveal to us your Son. Reveal to us the corruption in our own hearts and how Jesus is the solution. Reveal your holiness. Reveal the means for us to take up uh, that image of holiness and show it forth as your people. By the Spirit, make all of these things uh, known to us this morning by your word and by the sacrament to follow. In Christ's merit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll uh, read the scripture for this morning. Second Peter 1, 3 through 11. And again, we'll be kind of wrapping up this section, so we'll be in verses 10 through 11. Well, let's begin in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The question, or the one of the questions that I see our text addressing today kind of has been asked many ways. Uh... For example, is there such a thing as a carnal Christian? Or it's been asked, you know, can we be saved at one moment in time, but get serious at another moment in time, many years later? Or can we call Jesus Savior without also calling Him Lord? Uh, One example of a theology that kind of supports this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not really as Lord that you can claim his salvation but not really be obedient to him uh, is called Keswick theology, uh, spelled Keswick, if you've read about it, but it's pronounced Keswick, don't ask me why. And it's known for these slogans like, let go and let God, referring to sanctification, or, uh, you know, get saved and then later you get serious. We, uh, a few notable people 
who've held these beliefs, Keswick beliefs, include Andrew Murray, uh, Charles Finney, and even late in his life, Hudson Taylor, the founder of uh, the China Inland Mission. This is a form of second blessing theology. You know, the first blessing is you get saved. The second blessing sometime down the line is that transformation from carnality to spirituality. It's obtained by letting go and letting God, waiting on God to move you from this lower plane to the higher plane and oftentimes through some sort of suffering. And we've kind of heard these testimonies. I'm sure you have. Maybe you feel like you have a similar testimony, but where a person says, I was saved at age 14 at camp, but I made Jesus the Lord of my life when I was 18 because trial X, Y, or Z really shook me up. Uh, those types of testimonies really come out of or influenced by a Keswick theology. And that's not to say people don't experience life in that way or God doesn't work in certain ways, but perhaps we need to be kind of reinterpreting that original salvation moment if if there was no transformation to follow it. That's not to say we have to immediately in the first week become personifications of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Mm-hmm. Praise God. But the, there's an assumption in the Bible and here in our text that there is to be a noticeable change in us when we turn to Christ. Because that turning toward Christ also turns is, includes a turning away from sin. The two go hand in hand. And of course it will take time. And as I said last week, we will never arrive in this process. But as verse 11 says of Jesus, He is our Lord and our Savior. And because that's true, it is a grace of God that we have, that we can look to our fruit to confirm what we have, to confirm that eternal stake in Christ, which is what Peter calls us to do. So beginning here in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. There's no doubt that that's a difficult statement to interpret. You know, how can we confirm something that was predestined before the ages began? How can we confirm God's actions? I think that's actually kind of the point. And at first glance, we might read this and think, okay, I have to live up to a certain standard to then obtain the titles of called and elect. Or if I don't maintain the standard, those titles are going to be taken away from me. Of course, those things are things God has done. Those are things He secured in His divine will. He doesn't elect someone and then unelect someone. He doesn't call someone effectually and then disregard them later. Notice how He addresses them here. He addresses them as brothers. These are people who are Christians. They're fellow heirs with Him. So this is not some kind of tryout to get on a team or stay on a team. It is a call to confirm something we already know we possess. Now, what does that mean? To confirm our calling and election. That word, uh, confirm, it means something like base, like the base, a stable base of a pedestal or something like that is where it finds its root. Uh, So here, Peter is calling us to supply some substance which weighs down our claims to be members of the elect of God. 
I kind of think of those little kid basketball hoops that you have the, the base and you fill it with water. Like, fill the base with some substance. Give it some sturdiness, some foundation. And we remember that these, in, in Second Peter especially, true Christians are being contrasted against false teachers and false Christians. Uh, Stan showed me his bulletin last week with all the pronouns circled. That's a great exercise because you can really see the contrast between the true and the false believers in Second Peter. Um, and this, this is very similar to God's election of his people of Old Testament Israel. Uh, they too were elect and called of God. And similarly, corresponding to the call of God on their lives was this call to live as chosen and called people even in the midst of wickedness and corruption. If you want to turn over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy is kind of considered to be three sermons of Moses before the people enter into the promised land. So the context here is he's telling them how they should live as they go into this land of Canaan where there are wicked nations. Deuteronomy 7, 5 through 11. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you this day. So the expectation here on God's elect, God's called, his redeemed people, is that they not be corrupted by the nations, that they do live in obedience, that they obey his commandments. They are to remain holy even in the midst of wicked nations. And of course it isn't that he's calling them to earn their redemption status. He's already brought them up by his strong arm out of the land of slavery. He's already redeemed them. But it's because he chose them, because they are his people whom he's redeemed, that he expects them to remain pure and obedient. You can imagine an Israelite who takes license with that title, chosen of God. We We can do that sometimes. We are tempted in that way sometimes. We're chosen of God. And then we can be a little bit licentious. We can let a few things slide. But how hollow, what a baseless claim if, you, if you're taking license with that title, chosen of God. 
Now, imagine an Israelite. He has a few idols in his tent. Maybe his Midianite wife brought them in. That's an abuse to the name of Yahweh, to claim his electing favor, his redeeming love, when carelessly and crassly you have idols in your house. I think this is what Peter means when he calls us to confirm our calling and election, that we're to live in such a way that accords with those glorious titles of called and elect, to lend credence to our confession by holy lives lived before God. And the product of that confirmation of our calling and election is that we're confirmed in our own souls. We have assurance. It produces assurance in ourselves. And it also confirms our status to the world. In other words, we are assured and we are vindicated when we confirm our election and calling in this way. Peter says, he begins this verse 10 with the word, Therefore, therefore be diligent to confirm your calling and election. So he, the, the call here is to confirm our uh, location or our position, our position in Christ, our location in Christ. So if we're going to claim that, we need to sure up that claim. We need to give that claim a foundation. But we never forget that every grace, including the grace of sanctification, is a grace of God. Anyone among us who's bearing fruit is bearing fruit of the vine into which we were grafted by the hand of God. And fruit is one of the primary means of identifying the good and the bad tree, the true and the false Christian, the true and the false teacher. This is why our godliness bears witness to us and the world around us that we are called and elected of God. This diligence, he calls us to, this diligence is the same as he he said in verse 5, make every effort, be diligent. We are to be diligent in putting on the virtues. Peter's charge in these verses is to diligently confirm our position in Christ. And we, it's not diligently questioning our salvation. But by being diligent to make every effort to put on godly qualities, as we read in verses 5 through 7, if, if we're a branch of the tree of the called and elected, then we'll produce the fruit of the called and elected. And we see this in the next clause of verse 10. He says, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you practice these qualities, these it's practicing the qualities that gives weight to our calling and election. Because those who practice the qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, those who practice them will never fall, is what he says. While the ones who do not practice them, the assumption is, will fall. Again, it's not that we're being diligent to produce these qualities in our lives will somehow earn or win us some kind of eternal security, but rather they show us the source of our life, which is found in Christ. Christ is the eternal vine. If we're united with him, we will practice these qualities and we will not fall. And the fruit is the confirmation. I can claim to be a world traveler all I want to, but I've never been to Canada I've barely been to Mexico. 
Uh, maybe I have ambition to see the world, but I can't call myself a world traveler based on my ambition or my desire to be a world traveler. I have to go on trips. I have to go places. Likewise, we confirm our position in Christ, our titles, by doing things that people in Christ do. We practice these godly qualities. And of course, I, I don't know, I think this caveat always feels necessary, and perhaps it is, but we're not talking about perfectionism here. But in some measure, we should begin to see, you know, as when we're converted, maybe we'll see those first buds and, and some flowers and little fruits forming, and they mature and they grow slowly. And with diligence and every effort and the grace of God, we are always pr- pushing toward bearing mature fruit. So here in this text, we see very plainly that, that salvation, the salvation of Jesus goes hand in hand with the Lordship of Jesus. Without godly qualities in our lives, which found our claims to be the elect of God, we do not have Christ, which eliminates all doubt about the notion of a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing, for example, as a Christian drunkard, or a gay Christian, or an angry Christian. Now, we need to be clear, we can struggle with any of those things. But they do not define us. They are not our identity any longer. Uh, Westminster Confession 13, uh, the third um, Chapter 13, the third, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Yeah, verse for all intents and purposes. Section, thank you. Uh, Reads like this. And by the way, if these things, like trying to figure out how sanctification works in our lives, if you read Westminster 13 through 15, it would be a really valuable exercise. It's really amazing the balance that they have. But in 13, section 3, It reads, in which war, that is the war between flesh and spirit, although the remaining corruption in us for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting in holiness in the fear of God. That's what he's saying there. In Time for a time, the, the flesh may prevail, but through the grace of God, the regenerate soul will prevail over his sin. On the other hand, if we're persisting in sin unrepentantly, First John 1 says plainly, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So new life is a spirit-born life. 
And if we have Spirit-born life, we will begin to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. In verse 11 here, he gives us the reason uh, we're to be diligent in confirming our calling and election uh, by practicing godly qualities. He says in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I, I think most of us, I know I kind of thought this way, that growing up being saved uh, was this one event, this moment in time, uh, which of course it's true that there was that first moment where dead bones became living you know, regenerate soul. But salvation is truly, in the Bible, a lifelong process. It's been said, we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. Peter says uh, here at the beginning of verse 11, in this way it will be richly provided for you. In this way, which I take to mean by God, from the context, by God, supplying to you a living faith that produces godliness, he will richly provide an inheritance into the kingdom. So this sanctification part of salvation is an act of God. And you see what he says here? I think this is amazing. Amidst all of this talk of you know, every effort, he's pushing these people to, to make effort, to be diligent, to work hard at this, and practicing godliness, in the midst of all of that still, he says, it's rich provision. He will richly provide for you. So this is all a work of God. And this is the great difference between Christianity and all other, other faiths. Because in other faiths, effort, diligence, and practicing religion are a means to arrive at God, to get to God. Christianity says that they are all a gift of God and a means of bringing us closer to Himself. So it's by this means, by this comprehensive means, that He brings us into the eternal kingdom. And it's unlike the temporal kingdom with its temporal kings. We have our inheritance, an eternal kingdom with an eternal king, the great David's greater son, seated on His throne. So then how pale are the colors of sin and temporary self-service when placed alongside the brilliance of a promise of an eternal kingdom. That truly is a precious gift. It truly is a rich provision. And to lead a godly life and to put on these godly qualities hurts. You know, it doesn't feel good. It's painful most of the time. To use a phrase that we talked about midweeks at the midweek study, it involves self-denial, which feels like death. But truly, what a light pinprick of discomfort in light of the eternal kingdom, which is to be our dwelling place and truly already is, that we would get to live under this one king who can, the only king who can actually live up to his promises and provide for us all beyond all we could ask or think. So, brothers and sisters, a life lived claiming God's grace of forgiveness, while at the same time ignoring His grace of cleansing, is to live a contradictory life. 
And the question this morning that we need to ask ourselves is, are we able to look back on our lives and see fruit, see progress? And if we're honest, most of us, far less than we would like. We see very slow progress. But we should be able to identify progress. On the other hand, we may live as we wish, setting aside aspirations of godliness, setting aside aspirations of putting to death the flesh, and putting on the virtues which Peter has listed here. We may bear no visible fruit. And I say this in a room full of people I know are Christians because sometimes you can't tell for sure if that's the case for you, you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. And I would call you to repent, believe on Christ, and take up your cross and follow Him. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And His commandments are not burdensome. He will provide for us all that we need to live a life before Him. For those of us who are confirmed in our calling and our election, we, we can look back and see you know, the transforming hand of the potter on what is stiff, lumpy, dirty, impure clay, forming it into something beautiful, increasingly in the image of Christ. We rejoice. We rejoice at the prospect of an eternal kingdom. And we rejoice that we know that we are His. And I think we know also, we have, I'm sure you do, I know I do, have these things rolling around in the back of our minds, which we say, I have not made every effort. I have not been diligent. I have neglected God's grace in some way. Now, I'm sure for each one of us, there's one or two of those qualities in Peter's list which are stickier for us than the other ones. And, and dear friends, it's true. It, he has given us, as he says, all we need for life and godliness. He has richly provided for us through Christ alone an inheritance into the eternal kingdom. So those sticky points for us can be wiped clean, probably to reveal another sticky point. But that's the nature of sanctification in this life, and it's a beautiful process. And it's one that God brings us through because we are indeed in Christ by His blood. So Jesus is indeed both Savior and Lord. And we need to live in light of both of those realities. Amen.